if you really think about the time we live in and the amount of information, the amount of science and technology that we have, the, the amount of information that is just out there is growing exponentially. The amount of information that comes at us that we have to process every day is monumentally huge. It's so much more than it was just 50 years ago. You know, we've gone from, you know, black and white huge television consoles that picked up three or four major stations to now we have whole channels dedicated to animals and, you know, women's television and the Food Network. And we have, you know, there's, you know, hundreds of channels now. We've got TV. We've got Internet. We have all these different ways that media tries to present information to us. And so it becomes very, very important that we're able to determine what is truth and what is not truth. And there are lots of elaborate things out there that come at us where people can try and trick us. There's all kinds of hoaxes. And there's all kinds of different forms of these scams and hoaxes that can come at us. So because of that, it's good for us all to have kind of a built-in lie detector kit so that we can determine what's true and what's not. Talk about a few of the things that are going to be involved with that. Uh, you know, we want to be able to test the things that people tell us, test them for the truth. And that's, you know, the scripture that was read a moment ago. We talked about the brands. It says that they examine the scriptures. There, there's some work going on there. When someone, you know, in this instance, when Paul came and he preached to them and he talked to them and he, and he tried to spread the good news and give them the message of Christ, they didn't just say, oh, well, he seems like a nice guy. He's a really good speaker. Sounds good. We'll follow him. There was something else that happened there. They put some work into it. They looked at the things that he said, and they compared him. I'm sure that he talked to them about all the prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ. They went and checked those things. That's what's implied by this passage here. They checked those things to see if they were true. And when they determined that they were true, then it says many people believe. So what we're going to talk about this morning is this lie detector kit is really a way to help us examine the things that people say to us about the Bible. So we're going to talk about the kit, and then we're going to talk about a couple things that can happen where people can try and deceive us. These are pretty pretty common things we'll run into. Uh, the cherry pick, as I call it, is uh, something that you're going to run into a lot down here in the south. Uh, the other one, extraordinary external claims, is more of something that you would run into up, up in the north, having lived in both places for a while now. Uh, trying to give you guys some practical application of the things that you're going to encounter uh, in your everyday life. So let's get right into it. Let's talk about the lie detector kit. All right, the Christian's lie detector kit. These are just some general principles that are all encompassed under the phrase examining the scriptures or examining claims, examining things that people say. Uh, the, the first thing and the most important thing that you should do here is when someone says something about the Bible, I do this because the Bible says I have to do it. You need to check the references, and you need to check the scriptures that they use to make their points. Right along with that, you need to be wary of conclusions that people draw if they present it without any data or references. If someone were to come up to you and say, you're saved by grace alone. You do want to take a, you know, say a little prayer with me and take Jesus into your heart. That's how you get salvation. Where's the justification for that? Where's the scripture that talks about that? Can you show me in the Bible? Those, you shouldn't just say, oh, okay, great, let's say the prayer. Ask questions. You should be interrogative about that thing. It's the idea of this examining what they're saying. Test what the, what the claim is that they're making. Uh, you should also be wary of statistics of small numbers. And we, we see this all the time, and we even hear this from the pulpit every once in a while. I've jokingly thrown up here some examples for some of these just to kind of illustrate them. You know, if, uh, if somebody's you know, uh, playing a, you know, gambling with dice or something like that, 
I've thrown three sevens in a row, so I can't lose tonight. You know, we don't want to draw incorrect conclusions just from a limited set of data. You know, if somebody says, uh, you know, one in five people are Chinese. I know a whole lot of people, and, uh, you know, if you know 200 people and none of them are Chinese, you know, there, there are things like that that, you know, you should kind of question that and think through that. Uh, because people can use things like this to very convincingly deceive you. Someone could say that, uh, you know, one in three Christians believe that we should have a president who prays. And so because of that, we should establish a Christian theocracy in the United States and try and base that off of the Bible. That's, that's adding a whole bunch of extra stuff and making a whole bunch of extra claims that really goes beyond what the kingdom of God is all about. It's these kind of claims that we want to be careful of and we want to test and make sure that when people say things about the Scriptures, they're actually said in the Bible. And that they're not just taking one little thing and extrapolating it to make a much larger point to try and deceive you into something. Uh, this, is, this is a real big one. And it's kind of some big words here, but I think the example really makes, uh, makes it, helps it make sense. Uh, we want to be wary of those who confuse correlation with causation. And so the example here is a survey shows that more college graduates are homosexual than those with lesser education. Therefore, education makes people gay. Now, this is kind of an uh, you know, exaggerated example here, but we see people make these type of arguments all the time. This isn't just, you know, in your everyday work life with, with people talking about their various uh, beliefs and their various religions that they, that they adhere to. Uh, politicians use this a lot, too. This is a very common way to try and deceive people and make a point. So we want to be careful when we hear statements like that. You know, ask, ask questions. Get more detail on that. Find out, okay, where, where's that data come from? You know, what's the survey say? What, what data went into doing that? How did they conduct it? You know, is that the only thing that makes people gay? Or could there be other factors improving? Clearly, education does not make people gay. We need to kind of have that healthy sense of questioning and not just taking just a blank statements like that and taking them as fact. We want to be questioning and testing and examining those things. You see, this we're kind of building. It's kind of a mindset. You don't just take what someone says as, as fact. Even me today, the stuff I'm saying, check these things. Go back and test them. We especially want to be wary of those who attack the arguer instead of the argument. This happens a lot, particularly when you get into uh, discussing creation versus evolution with people. A lot of times, if you're taking the creationist standpoint and you're trying to argue that, you'll get attacked, and one of the attacks will be, well, you know, you're not a biologist. You're not a geologist. You're not, you know, pick the scientific field that evolution affects. There's about 20 of them. You're not that. You're not an expert in that field. So you know what? We don't really need to take what you say seriously. Well, you know what? It's, it's the argument. It's not the arguer. Someone who, you know, you, if that were the case, only PhDs could ever make arguments about anything. Only PhDs could have valid opinions about everything. That, that's not what we're talking about. It's the idea. It's the argument. If someone, if you make an argument on something against someone, and the first thing they do is they come back and say, well, you're not this, and they start attacking you, that's called an ad hominem attack. In Latin, that means to the man. They're attacking the person who's making that argument. That's a very clear indication right off the bat that you are probably dealing with someone who actually doesn't have a lot of knowledge to be able to counter what you've said. You need to be prepared for that. 
And the way, you know, when you're having a discussion like that, you can work around like that. Well, you know, let's not keep these attached personal, okay? This is an idea I'm talking about. Let's, let's deal with the argument that I'm making and not deal with me. And this last one's real important to you. If, you know, if there's a chain in an argument, if there are six points to make an entire case, every piece, every length of that chain has got to work. You can't have step one, two, and three work, four be kind of fuzzy, and then five, six work, and so say, hey, there's the argument. Everything has to work together. It all has to fit together. And so this is just kind of a healthy, a healthy mindset uh, for how we examine things. And this last one is it's three points, but it's really kind of one thing all wrapped together. And it's the idea that you know, we want to be wary of those who simply run off with the, with the first explanation that they think of or something. If you're trying to understand how do I get salvation based on what the New Testament says, and we're going to talk about an example here in a minute. But you find a verse that says, you, you know, it, it comes by grace and not by works. You take that and go, oh, I'm saved by grace alone. I don't have to do anything. And you run with that. And you start telling people about that. And you stop inquiring. You stop questioning. You just say, oh, I found this. This is what I have to do. Well, a healthier way to approach that is, okay, here's the problem I've got to solve. The New Testament says some things about salvation. I want to understand all of those things. I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to search the scriptures. And I'm going to look for verses that talk about salvation and how I get that salvation. I'm going to think, pull together all these different verses, and I'm going to look out there, and I'm going to see what are all the possible different explanations that I can come up with for how a person can get salvation. All right? So in science, we would call this building a hypothesis. You're coming up with a test. And then you're going to take these tests, and you're going to test them against the scriptures to see if there are any scriptures that disprove any of them. And so if you come up with 20 different ways to get salvation based on all the different verses you find, and you start testing them, you're going to work your way through and you're going to start eliminating some things. You're going to start to see, that, oh, wait, you know, we're not saved by grace alone. There's some other things that talk about that. You can come up with, we can talk about all kinds of ideas, but you see the idea there, right? You work through it and you're testing it and you're eliminating bad ideas. The ideas that survive out of this process, they're going to have a much higher chance of being correct because you've taken a comprehensive approach to looking at the scriptures. You're not just taking one verse and running with it. You look at all the scriptures, see what all of it says, study it in detail, then make a determination of that. It's a mindset that helps you that helps you from being easily deceived. And this this is really probably the most critical idea. If you don't get anything else out of this lesson today, this is this is you take this with you. This is critically important. So what we're going to do now, I've kind of laid out the points of this lie detector kit, this kind of how to examine things. Let's take it here on a couple of examples and, uh, and, and just run with it a little bit, kind of see how it actually works in practical use. This is my elephant. Uh, we'll call him Big Al for the moment. Um, and what we're going to do here is I'm actually going to read a poem it's called The Parable of the Blind Men and the Elephant. And it's by John Godfrey Sachs. It goes a little something like this. It says, It was six men of Indistan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling the tusk, cried, 
Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, it is very clear this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and, happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most the wondrous beast is like is very plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can, this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the right, they all were in the wrong. And the idea here that we're going for is that each of these guys looked at a limited piece of information based on the touch. They're all blind, so they're all touching different parts of this elephant. And they're all describing the elephant based on a very limited point of view. And that leads us right into what I call the art of the cherry pick. You will run into this all the time if you're having religious discussions with your coworkers or the people around you, you know, if you're volunteering and you get into a talk about religion, this is one of the most common things you're ever going to encounter. And it's the same idea that this poem illustrates. It's, it's cherry-picking the scriptures. Uh, you know, a more uh, comprehensive definition would be it is the selective use of information to establish a preconceived notion. In other words, I'm going to start with a conclusion, something that I think is right, and I'm going to go pick out a few verses to back it up and make my point and ignore anything that disagrees with it. So for an example here, as I briefly mentioned earlier, let's take, you know, take a look at Romans 11, 5, 6. You can flip there, but I've got it all right here if you just want to read it. It says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, earlier in that chapter, we understand that what it's talking about here is just talking about salvation. So a lot of people look at this verse and they'll say, well, look, we have salvation by grace alone. It doesn't matter what I do, see? It is no longer on the basis of works. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. Or as uh, one of Luke's little books likes to say, I'm a little rabbit runaway and nobody can tell me what to do. Uh, this idea that, you know, we can do whatever we want. We've got salvation. We're saved by grace. We can do whatever we want now. Jesus, he paid his debt on the cross. He, he went and died for us. He, you know, we have redemption of our sins. If, if we accept his word and we believe in him, then we have salvation. And that's it. We're saved. We don't have to do anything after that. Isn't that great? Now, if somebody says that, how are you going to approach that? This is a cherry pick. They've missed something. they left something out. So the question, you need to test the claim. You've got to think about it. Are there any other verses that mention works as requirements of salvation? Are there any other verses that mention in a context of how works, or are there any actions that we have to take in order to be accepted into the kingdom of Christ? Are there any things like that? Here's an easy one. Uh, James 2, 18 through 26. Let's take a look at it real quick. James 2, 18 through 26. says there, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what we see here is another passage that gives more detail. It shines more light on this idea. And so what we can do is if we develop that hypothesis that says, are we saved by grace alone? We find another passage here that clearly shows that it's not. And there are a whole bunch of other verses that we could go to and talk about to build all, all this together. But there's just one. This is just a, a, a quick snapshot of how to go through this thinking process. Uh, you will run into this on all kinds of topics. If you're talking to Pentecostal, they'll, they'll want to tell you all about how they get their gifts of the Spirit and how they're better because they're, they are Spirit-filled Christians or they go to Spirit-filled churches. And our church isn't a Spirit-filled church, but theirs is a Spirit-filled church because they do special things. And they'll go and pick about six verses to talk about that. And so you'll have to go through those verses and then add in more information to show the whole picture. Pick a doctrine that's out there you see there's, there's plenty of problems like that. We want to take a comprehensive approach to the New Testament to make sure that we're including everything. We want to make sure also ourselves that when we're talking to people, that we're not just, you know, okay, I believe this, uh, and I believe this because, you know, I heard it from the preacher the other day, and uh, he mentioned this verse over here, so I'm going to use that to convince somebody else. You know, make sure that you understand when you're trying to talk to somebody or teach somebody, understand exactly what goes into the argument that you're making. Understand multiple verses. Don't be guilty of the same thing, because if someone questions you and you don't know, you know, that could significantly affect their impression of, of what you're teaching and, and, and how you're presenting yourself. All right, beat that one to death. Everybody get it? All right. Uh, like I was saying, this is a, a very common thing that we run into, um, and particularly this last point here. You know, this is something I actually got from my father-in-law. We were... Uh, Oh, I don't know, it was about a year or two ago. We were down there in the spring, and uh, they keep a real big garden down at their house. And everybody had come over for dinner, all the all the kids and grandkids and everything. And dinner was over with, and they're all going outside, and we're going to have this big baseball game out in the front yard, right? And uh, everybody's going out to play baseball. And I noticed Mr. Smith, that's Cindy's dad, he's walking over towards the garden. He's got his work clothes on. So, huh. so he, he goes over there and he fires up the tiller and he's going to start tilling up the ground while everybody else is playing. Well, if my dad saw that, an older man working like that and me playing baseball, he probably would come over and punch me. Uh, that's just not something that's allowed in the Allen household. So I, you know, handed my glove off to somebody else and went over and said, I see you're about to till this. Why don't you let me do it? I, I'll do this, and you know, if you want to mess with something else, easier, you know, that's, that's fine. And the sentence that came out of his mouth is that sentence right there. I will never forget it. Hard work requires no invitation. You don't have to wait for somebody to ask you to do something. You don't have to wait for somebody to tell you what to do. You don't have to wait for an invitation 
to go dig and evaluate something that someone says in the pulpit or in the church. Right? You just go do it. All right? And it takes hard work. If someone make, comes up with this new doctrine and they've got ten verses that they've cherry-picked all over the place and they're trying to make a point off of it, you know what? That takes some work. You have to put some time into that to go through, study what they've said, study other things, and understand what they're saying, and then find other information that might go get that, that, that doesn't, It's not always quick. It takes time. And we've got to be willing to put that time in to make sure that we can understand what's true and what's false. Sometimes we'll also have common things. This is something that really runs around a lot, uh, particularly through email. Um, you'll get these email forwards, okay? Uh, and the reason I've got this one up here, I actually got this one from my dad uh, not too long ago. It's something that's come around, uh, I don't know, it probably comes around a couple times a year, it seems like, at least through my hotmail. That's about how often I get it. But people will make extraordinary claims about evidence that supposedly corroborates an event in the Bible. So that's why I say it's an, it's an extraordinary external claim. For instance, this, this particular email, I'm going to read it here in a second, just to read the whole email and let you hear it. Some of you may have even received this before. Uh, this email talks about um, chariot wheels being found in the Red Sea. And so the title of the email is, wow, you know, Red Sea crossing artifacts confirm actual location of, of, the, of the exodus out of Egypt. And there are a lot of things like this that go around. I want to be real, real careful with this because we all, there's all some, uh, there's, there's an instinctive desire for us to find artifacts that show that the Bible's true. We all love it when that happens. You know, when we see archaeological evidence that the city of Jericho has been found and that one of the walls, actually the, 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 we see evidence that all the walls have collapsed outward. That's very gratifying to us. We like, that's comfort, that's a small piece of confirmation of our faith and what we believe in the Bible. So there's already this desire, this strong, strong desire for us to try and grab on the information that's presented to us that confirms those kind of things. It's a very powerful thing. It really bolsters our faith. The problem is that a lot of people will try and take advantage of us with that, and they'll put things out there that just simply aren't true. And this, this email is a great example of that. Let's, let's just read it real quick. I've included a few of the pictures. There's a bunch more, but I thought that these were the most interesting. Um, this is how it starts. It's, uh, subject line is, wow, parting of the Red Sea. And just on this chain that I've got here, it, it appears that it's been shown to about uh, 45 people. So there's quite a few people that are getting this. So it starts off and it says, uh, chariot wheels found at the bottom of the Red Sea. And it has a couple pictures. These are a couple of them. This is a picture of a, you know ancient Egyptian chariot wheel. This is a picture of what's been, there's several others like this. You know, the chariot wheels that are supposedly found in the bottom of the Red Sea. There's some maps that show some crossing locations, things like that. It says, you will be surprised to see proof of Pharaoh's chariot and bones of horses and men found in the Red Sea. Evidence of the crossing of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's drowned army. Confirmation of the actual exodus route has come from divers finding coral encrusted bones and chariot remains in the Gulf of Aqaba. One of the most dramatic records of divine intervention in history is the account of the Hebrews' exodus from Egypt. The subsequent drowning of the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea was not an insignificant event. And confirmation of this event is compelling evidence that the biblical narrative is truly authentic. Over the years, many divers have searched the Gulf of Suez in vain for artifacts to verify the biblical account. 
But carefully following the biblical and historical records of the Exodus brings you to Nueva, a large beach in the Gulf of Aqaba, as Ron Wyatt discovered in 1978. Repeated dives in depths ranging from 60 to 200 feet deep, or 18 meters to 60 meters if you like metric, over a stretch of almost 2.5 kilometers has shown that the chariot parts are scattered across the seabed. Artifacts found include wheels, chariot bodies, as well as human and horse bones. Divers have located on the Saudi coastline opposite Nueva as well. Since 1987, Ron Wyatt found three four-spoke gilded chariot wheels. Coral does not grow on gold, hence the shape has remained very distinct. The hope for future expeditions is to explore the deeper waters with remote cameras or mini-subs. Mute witness to the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea by the Hebrews 3,500 years ago, these chariot wheels have been found with a metal detector. Coral-encrusted chariot wheels have been filmed off of the Saudi coastline, and they match chariot wheels found in Tutankhamun, the King Tut's tomb. Uh, there's a picture of some bones here, and the caption says, Mineralized bone, one of the many found at the crossing site. This one, tested by the Department of Osteology at Stockholm University, was found to be a human femur from the right leg of a 165 to 170 centimeter tall man. It is essentially fossilized, replaced by minerals and coral, hence cannot be dated by radiocarbon methods, although this specimen was obviously from antiquity. Chariot wheel and axle were covered with coral and upended. Uh, let's see, it says Exodus 14.25, and they took off the chariot wheels, but they drove them heavily. Solomon's memorial pillars, and this, this is another, uh, these are a series of captions under some pictures. Uh, when Ron Wyatt first visited Nueva in 1978, by the way, this is a picture of Nueva up here on, the, uh, on your left. Uh, when Ron Wyatt first visited Nueva in 1978, he found a Phoenician-style column lying in the water. Unfortunately, the inscriptions have been eroded away, hence the column's importance was not understood until 1984, when a second granite column was found on the Saudi coastline opposite, identical to the first, except on this one, the inscription was still intact. In Phoenician letters, archaic Hebrew, it contained the words Mizraim, which is Egypt, Solomon, Edom, Death, Pharaoh, Moses, and Yahweh, indicating that King Solomon had set up these columns as a memorial to the miracle of the crossing of the sea. Saudi uh, Arabia does not admit tourists, and perhaps fearing unauthorized visitors, the Saudi authorities have since removed this column and replaced it with a flag marker where it once stood. How deep is the water? The Gulf of Aqaba is very deep in places over a mile. Uh, the 1,600 meters or 5,280 feet deep. Even with the sea dried up, walking across would be difficult due to the steep grade down the sides. But there is one spot where if the water were removed, it would be an easy descent for people and animals. This is the line between the Weba and the opposite shore in Saudi Arabia. And there's a map that shows this, uh, this proposed path. Depth sounding expeditions have revealed a smooth, gentle slope descending from the Weba out into the Gulf. This shows up almost like a pathway on depth recording equipment, confirming its biblical description from Isaiah 43:16, a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. The Bible writers frequently refer to the miracle of the Red Sea crossing, for it was an event which finds no equal in history. The Hebrew prophets describe the sea at the crossing site as the waters of the great deep, the depths of the sea, uh, from Isaiah 51:10. Knowing the exact spot to which the Bible writers were referring, what is the depth there? The distance between Nueva and where artifacts have been found on the Saudi coast is about 11 miles. Along this line, the deepest point is about 800 meters or 2,600 feet deep. No wonder that inspired writers of the Bible described it as the mighty waters. And no wonder that not a single Egyptian survived when the water collapsed in upon them. Uh, in God we trust. That's how it is. Now, 
this is a very, very convincing, you know, this is not a short, this is a lot of work has gone into this. Okay, there are scriptures referenced, there are, there's supposed archaeology, we have the name of a, the person who's made these discoveries. A lot of times it's tempting to listen to something like that and say, wow, you know, they've got pictures, they've got, there's a lot of stuff put together. When you first look at it, it can be very conceiving. And it even plays on that because early on, it talks about, it gives a background of the description of Exodus. It's setting you up to have an emotional payback. It's, this is all a very emotional argument. But let's, let's talk about the rational side of it. Let's get back to this lie detector kit. Here's a few questions for us to think about. Where's the evidence? Right, we've got some pictures, but these are extraordinary claims. You claim that you have biblical confirmation of the Red Sea crossing route and that you have artifacts that confirm that. that it's huge. Why isn't this all over the news? Yeah, so where's the evidence? Uh, who's this Ron Wyatt guy? Is he a qualified archaeologist? Again, we're not at the, now I'm not attacking the man here. I'm going to just look, let's look at his qualifications and see, and see what kind of work he's done. Uh, you know, where's the radiometric dating of the artifacts? Notice they say they couldn't date the wheels, a couple of the wheels, because they had gold on them. That's okay. There are plenty of other ways to determine approximate dates for those things. You can get the, you can get the gold off. There's wood underneath it. It's not a solid gold chariot wheel, okay? So where's, where's the confirmation that tells us that this is actually, a, these artifacts are about the same date, about the same time as the Exodus? Uh, you know, which scientific journals were these findings published in? Uh, like I already said, what museums display these artifacts? What scientists independently evaluated these claims through peer review? Understand that when it comes to finds like this, somebody finds something, they do their research, they think that it is from this date, it's this kind of thing, and, and that this is how it got there. They've got to publish those findings in a journal, all right, in a scientific journal. Part of that publishing process is there is a peer review an independent confirmation. They have to be able to show and provide repeatable results that can be repeated by independent third-party people that verify their claims. We don't have any of that for this. What we found is that there's actually very little evidence. At best, it's circumstantial. Ron Wyatt uh, actually is from the Nashville area. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, but he basically did this on his vacation. He's not an archaeologist. So I remember correctly, I believe he was a doctor. Uh, and so he's basically a, a part-time archaeologist. This is his hobby. This is, uh, you know, this is what he did. He traveled all over, all over the Middle East trying to find these things. This, this was his hobby. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily discount it just because of that, but it certainly factors in when we consider the whole case here, what's being said. Uh, in fact, some people will use that, uh, you know, as, as uh, evidence that God was with him and confirmation of what he's done. How, how could Ron Wyatt, this guy from Nashville, who has no archaeological training, who only did it part-time because it's just something interesting, how could he go and find all of these things without the hand of God? It's so improbable that God had to be with him, so it had to happen. That's the kind of argument that's made with something like that. And I'm sure if you all think about it, there are a lot of people who make arguments like that. It's... It, it, it can be very, very seductive, and it's very, very easy to be deceived by these kinds of things. Uh, one of the other things that's interesting about Ron Wyatt, if you do a little digging, he actually found a whole bunch of other things. He claimed to find the sites of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we already talked about the Red Sea crossing path. He found Noah's Ark. He actually did get published a little bit on that. 
uh, in the mid 80s, uh, Biblical, Biblical Archaeology Review uh, published some findings that he had where he claimed to find uh, Noah's Ark. It's since been uh, proved that that was a hoax, though. So, as far as I know, that's the only scientific journal that he ever was actually published in. Uh, he claimed to find a, a blueprints for ancient uh, machines that the Egyptians used to build the pyramids. He claimed to find the location of the Ark of the Covenant. He claimed to find the actual post hole in the ground where Christ's cross was, was placed. He claimed that he saw the Ark of the Covenant, but when he took pictures of it, the power of the Ark distorted it, and it ruined the film so he couldn't process it. And then he had a vision, and an angel in a vision told him that the world was not ready to see the Ark, and that the uh, Ark would be revealed in due time when the world was ready. How convenient that only he could see it, but no one could independently go look at it. Also, the angel told him that if he were to show anyone the entrance to the cave where it was found, if they went in there, they would be struck dead. Pretty convenient, I think. Uh, so you start tying all this together. And you know, this research, you know, I didn't spend hours on this. I spent about 15 minutes on it just using Google. I just sat down here and started searching. Ron Wyatt Archaeological Finds. You can find websites that, that support his finds. You can find websites that tear stuff apart. The important thing, though, is you know, we want to be skeptical of things like that. This, extraordinary claims like this, they require extraordinary evidence. There are some things that you should see. You should see this on CNN when you wake up on, on Monday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. If somebody releases this the night before, it would be front page news, and people would be talking about it all over the place. People would be praying in the streets. You would have, you would have every preacher and pastor in America going all over the place. People would be doing interviews on TV. They'd be talking about it. The Today Show would be flying out to the Middle East. You would have a full-blown circus covering this thing. When did that ever happen? It's never happened. So what we actually see is that disposal artifacts have never been found, they've never been verified. Whenever something's been shown, it's always quickly taken away, and it's never turned over to an independent testing lab or any kind of data or anything like that. Uh, there's actually a book published uh, it's called Holy Relics and Revelation, Recent Astounding Archaeological Claims Evaluated. It's by Russell and Colin Standish. It was, it was published in 1999. Uh, what's kind of interesting about that is that uh, the other thing about Ron Wyatt is he is a Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, they have some different views on uh, you know, Christ's return and things like that. And so his findings all seem to corroborate the Seventh-day Adventist view of things and their interpretation of the Bible. So these particular two guys, this Russell and Colin Standish, they are also Seventh-day Adventists and are both, I believe, one's a geologist and one's an archaeologist. And so they go through each and every one of Mr. Wyatt's claims, and they show that in, in some cases there's a little bit of circumstantial evidence, but most of these are just hoaxes. Uh, I didn't actually buy the book or read it. I just read, uh, several, I read about ten book reviews of it just to check. And... Uh, it seems like all, of, all evidence indicates that they pretty much shred every claim that, that Ron Wyatt ever made. Uh, and, you know, this took about 15 minutes. It, you know, do a few searches on Google. You, you can check things like this fairly quickly. Uh, the idea being that, uh, you know, again, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We don't, we don't want to be sucked in by things like this because what they do then is they'll get emails like this going out and they get people going, oh, my goodness, this is amazing, and then they ask you for money. Send us some money to help support our next expedition over to the Middle East while we go and look for more biblical artifacts. Make a donation. We're a nonprofit organization. We need to fund another dig site. 
and so those kind of things are going on. They take advantage of you by preying on the belief system that you already have. So we'll be on guard against those things. Two things we talked about today. You know, we want to be on guard against the cherry pick when somebody's dealing directly with the scriptures. But then these kind of external things, we've got to be on guard against them as well. So what we learned today is that this, this lie detection kit, it helps us show us the truth. It helps us determine what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. Because let's face it, you know, I'm sure a lot of our deaths look like this. I know mine's already getting like that, and I just started a job this past week. Uh, you know, there is information overload. There's a lot coming at us. We have to have tools in place to be able to process that and make sure that we aren't getting suckered because we have so much information coming at us. And this is important because the consequences of this can be eternal. I'm not going to go through 10 or 15 verses and talk about hell. You all know that. You know what the Bible says. You all know that the Bible says that if we don't get it right and if we're doing something false, if we're not following the truth, if we're not following God's way, we know that there's going to be trouble for us. We've got to be careful. We've got to be sure that we're doing these things correctly. And this kit, these, this method, these principles that I've laid out are going to help you do that. Uh, because ultimately, let's take a look at John 8, 31, 32. This is what we're going for. John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 